Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the pod that shares the stories of those affected by suicide. Lost a loved one? Attempted it yourself? Did you know that when you share a burden, the load is lightened? Come listen in with your host, Elaine Lindsay. Elaine Lindsay's mission? End the silence, stigma, and shame surrounding suicide, ideation, and mental health. Sharing your burden can lighten the load. Elaine says, we must normalize the conversation to make it easier for you to voice your pain and be able to ask for help. Reaching out to any other human being when you're in need of a listening ear must become the norm. Now, please note the Suicide Zen Forgiveness podcast is for education only. Some of this subject matter could be triggering for those of you that are either grieving or having mental health problems. Please call your local suicide hotline or mental health office if you need immediate help. My guest today is Marie Hoig. After being diagnosed with bipolar disorder at 17 and going through hell and suicidal times, Marie found her solution. Marie is now a clinical hormone coach, HRT physician educator, perimenopause and menopause specialist, and speaker with nearly 20 years of professional experience. She's worked directly with hormone therapy physicians and patients utilizing the most advanced and cutting-edge hormone replacement therapy approaches on the market. Marie started the Me No Pause Moxie website and blog to educate women after she realized that women and doctors lack knowledge and truth regarding menstrual cycle regulations, PMS, PMDD, perimenopause, and menopause reversal and prevention. Marie also noticed the lack of education and clinical application training that doctors are given in medical school about estrogen and adequate dosed female hormone therapies. As a result, women are needlessly suffering from mental illness and physical decline at all ages. This is why Marie founded Panacea Sciences, a company dedicated to educating and training physicians. And with all that said, I would like to introduce you formally to my guest. We're going to bring Marie up to the stage. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me on, Elaine. Oh, it's wonderful to have you here. I'm really I'm really looking forward to our discussion because I know it's going to be a lot of aha moments for me and for our audience as well. Having yeah, said that, I just want to, I want to say that we're going to take this conversation exactly where it needs to go and might be a little bit different from what you were expecting. But what I want to touch on first is the fact that this is September. It is Suicide Prevention and Awareness Month, and that is international. So we just want to be sure that we put that out there. Marie. Elaine. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, I thought I'll just hang on that for a moment. M Marie and I seem to have developed a really good 
connection when you meet someone and you just know that you're going to be friends. This is what we have here. I'm, I'm fangirling just a little bit. Marie, what I'm going to suggest is why don't you give us your story from where you'd like to, whether that's the start or whether it's the middle. Let's talk about the fact that you yourself have had suicidal. When I wanted to talk about my, what I do with hormone balancing and being an estrogen advocate, so to speak, I, I wasn't really thinking so much about suicide at the time, like when I came across you. And the more we spoke and the more I'm learning of this, the Suicide Prevention Month, I realized how so far removed of my life's suicide ideation is. Yeah. When it used to be so much a part of my life. And things are just so different now. And that's really what I want to talk about with this is just the difference in what used to be and what I'd like to share because I'd like other people, not just women, but men too, to understand that thinking about suicide and attempting suicide and just the whole negative stigma around it doesn't have to be so bad. There are reasons people feel this way. It's not just something people are born with. And it made me look back into my life, going back to the first time I had ever thought about suicide. And you can't really talk about suicide without talking about depression, because those two tend to go hand in hand. If people aren't depressed, then usually the suicidal thought processes don't typically come into play, though they do for some people. When I first look back, when I start thinking about suicide, I was very young, but it was around the time. And, and now where I am in my career, I can make the connection on, you know, why I was feeling the way that I was feeling at that time. But it was around the time of starting my period, my menstrual cycle. Wow. Okay. And it was also a time when I was in middle school, I was going to Bibb Junior High in Chico, California. And this was actually the first time I heard other girls talking about it. Now you're into a middle school and this school's different and conversations are different and periods are starting, menstrual cycles. So these are all these types of conversations that are going on. And I never really heard of the term suicide until I was really in middle school and started reading books but that were forbidden during that time too. Yeah. And so it fascinated me and scared me at the same time that other girls were talking about suicide. And I'm like, why, what, what is that? And then recognizing the things they were talking about were the feelings that I was, I had from time to time. And how horrible those feelings were. <clears throat> but yet they were taking it to another level with ending it. Yeah. And I had not made this connection yet with how badly I was feeling with my periods and my suicidal thoughts. And that somebody can actually even kill themselves and how devastating that was. So this is the first time I was just putting all these things together. What is suicide? And right gosh, I actually feel those things. And 
how close these girls have come and who have actually attempted suicide. So that was frightening for me. And then knowing somebody made it real and frightening. And then something I wanted to avoid because it was so frightening. And it was just a moment. Those are just moments of taking action that it frightened me just how quick and profound and final things uh-huh. were. Yeah. yeah. But I didn't realize it at the time that my suicidal thought processes when it, they started in middle school were directly related to my periods, my menstrual cycles. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting since talking to you and thinking about suicide a lot this these past few weeks, mostly because of the awareness, which is yeah. it's, we don't just shove everything under the rug. Cause these are things that you, that that's hard to talk about. Yeah. But I look back and think, wow, can I ever talk about that openly in the in, in public to talk about what made me decide at the very first time when I was young, what was going through my head, what was going on in my life. And then I had two other suicide attempts, one when I, in my early twenties and then later on in life. <clears throat> and I didn't, I hadn't made the connection at that time that I have made since then right. to my suicide attempts, but it's such a dark place to be Yeah. with suicide because you really do feel like there's nothing left and that nothing can fix it that it's everything is bad. <clears throat> I It's almost easier and better for me to talk about getting out of it than it is talking about being in it. I think we've left you in it long enough. I agree with you. Let's move on to what was it or who or what information did you find that turned a light bulb on? The thing was, is when I go to doctors, they don't, they didn't really know what was wrong with me. And when I would see my therapist, because I was told I had mental illness from a young age, because I came from a lot of trauma and childhood abuse, I really threw everything in that wastebasket of mental illness. I was told uh, at 17, I was severely clinically depressed. I was told that I had bipolar disorder that I would be depressed my entire life and that I would be medicated. And so I always just thought that because this was a part of who I was told who I was, I believed it. Like one, I was just happy that I found out that there was something wrong with me, that I wasn't just crazy. That when a doctor said, oh, you have bipolar or, oh, you have depression or, oh, you have this. I do. What's that? Because in the mid eighties, you don't really, they were just starting to talk about these things. And just the fact that I was able to have some sort of label to explain my moods and why I was feeling what I was feeling gave me some sense of relief. But I also found that to be a bit of a crutch. I ended up running with that uh, because it was convenient. And so I explained a lot of my moods and my behavior to other people. Oh, I'm depressed or I'm this. I have mood swings. It's a part of my disorder that you're going to have to deal with to be a part of my life. And 
it was the mindset, this is just who I am. So I thought maybe I need to let everybody know that this is what you're getting into. So I would preface most of my new friendships. I am this depressed person. I'm on medications and this and this, like it was some sort of an excuse. Uh, and that just really didn't work out very well for me. <laughs> Losing a lot of people and it's now it's their problem. And it's just, but it's all a part of the stigma though, or, or all a part of why I think what's put on us that I bought. Yeah. It's like, this is me. This is who I am. It's now my identity. And if you want to be a part of me, you have to be a part of my illness. And later on, when I realized that wasn't the case, when I look back on it, it's what a mess. So I was told I had a chemical imbalance. And that part of this severe depression and this chemical imbalance, part of it is the suicidal thoughts and this right. irrational behaviors and anger outbursts and that sort of thing. And so it's almost like part of me is, okay, yes, this is part of who you are, but that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it's who you are for the rest of your life. And at such a young age, I wasn't even 18. And so this is now my future. I was given this You'll never be able to cope. You'll never be able to do anything. You'll never be able to hold down a job. You'll always be on medications. You should probably look into disability. So this is all that was I was given at, at such a young age. They gave but, you a persona <clears throat> and, and you tried to make it fit. Yes, it was a double-edged sword, really. It yeah. was just a way for me not to take responsibility for my own behaviors so I, there wasn't a lot of personal growth. And then because I was medicated, that also puts a person in a place of not growing personally. And this would, these were lessons I learned later. It's okay. There was such a lack of personal development because I stayed in this place of being this medicated and was told I was this person, this identity. And I just, like I said, I just ran with it. And I just thought that's who I was when in reality it wasn't. And so any, and in my career, I happen to work with a lot of physicians. <clears throat> and so in that, I, I was always curious. I, I was never happy with that. I was happy in, to some degree, but then a part of me knew I wasn't mentally ill. Yeah. And this didn't sit well with me, though I was happy to be taken off the hook for my behavior and my irrational moods. I can tell, but see, this is just who I am. Sorry. I don't now have to be accountable for my behavior. And that was tough. So yeah, I have an excuse, but everybody's gone. Yeah. Yeah. They agree and they understand and they feel sorry for me, which I got a lot of feeling sorry for. And then after a while, it's okay. Yeah. You feel sorry for me, but where are you anyway? Yeah. I have everybody's sympathy, but nobody's around because nobody wants to deal with me or my moods or my behavior because that was just the basket. I threw everything because I was told this is how I am. You're bipolar. You have mood swings. You're irrational. You're angry. You, you're broken. You have problems. You have childhood issues. You have PTSD. Nobody, this is your life. And you're going to spend the rest of your life in therapy and on meds. But that I fought that a lot. And I talked to every doctor I could tell me about what you know about depression. As I mentioned before, when I was talking about my search for what's the truth in all this. So I would talk to every doctor. I'd go to the really young ones. What do y'all learn that's new about depression? Yeah. Oh, we have these medications. Then I realized it's okay. So this is all about medication and zapping my brain. 
and then I'd seek out the older guys. What'd y'all do when these old when when they came into your office complaining about depression? What'd you do then before the invention of all this? We tell them to go get a hobby, you know. They called it histrionics. Yeah, and exactly told you to go crochet, get a hobby, go buy some lingerie. Yeah, like loved yeah. your husband, stuff like that. Go have another child, whatever. Mm. Yeah, uh, but nobody really seen. I'm like, okay, so out of all y'all, nobody knows. Nobody's giving answers. Everybody's giving me prescriptions and recommendations for shock therapy and those sorts of things to make me stop talking about it. Yes, because that's what it was. Because nobody, we don't know. But let me give you this prescription. Yeah, for what? It'll make you feel better. No, it's going to make me stop talking about it. It's going to make me numb. It's going to make me okay with being in this place. It was going to make them feel better. Around you. I lived the majority of my life anywhere from six to 12 psychotropic drugs, just so I can get through my day. And it just didn't make sense to me. So then I met a doctor accidentally, actually. I had just moved back to, uh, from New York and looked in California and looked looking for a doctor to manage my psychotropic drug cocktail. And right before I left New York, my doctor said to me, listen, this cocktail is going to stop working for you at some point. They all have. And this is the last one. You've been on everything and every combination. So you may want to consider shock therapy. And he handed me a brochure and said, please, you know, consider this. And so when I moved to back to California and I found a doctor, I asked around, I was working with another doctor and I said, Hey, or dentist. And I said, Hey, do you know of a doctor who can write my <laughs> drug cocktail? Oh, and he says, I'm going to refer you to this doctor, but he's not like that doctor. He's more interested in getting you off of meds. I said, he probably thinks depression isn't an illness, but I'll give it a try anyway. And yeah, this doctor was not the same as other doctors, which was nice. This doctor said to me, I don't, my practice is a bit different. If you want to get off of your psychotropic drugs, I will do, I'll fight for you to do that. And I'll find out what's going on. But for the most part, I'm not interested in, I don't treat depression as an illness. And I don't think you have a Prozac deficiency. So I want to get to the root of it and I want to fix it but I can't do it by myself. If I give you recommendations and you don't do them, then where's that going to leave me? You're going to be back asking me for medications and I'm going to, I'm going to refer you to the guy who sent you here. And so that frightened me to a degree because anytime I, I knew that anytime a doctor would talk about anything outside of using drugs or procedures or treatments that it came with, dietary and lifestyle changes of which I had a horrible processed and sugar food diet. I found that a lot of my coping to get through my day, even on medications was done through using processed foods and sugar to calm my brain like a drug. Yeah. And I didn't realize this till later what I was doing but I was so addicted to these foods that the thought of never having them again was so frightening because I was afraid of what I would do to myself because I would get temporary moments of feeling 
not dead, of feeling not happy, but not dead, maybe happy. Maybe this is what happiness feels like. If I can gorge on these high sugar foods that can trigger the dopamine and the uh, serotonin and these chemicals just for a moment, even though I know on the other side of those fleeting moments is going to be more severe depression because of what I'm doing to my body. Cause I understand the chemistry. I just, I couldn't, it, it, I, I would, I felt like a failure and I hadn't even tried yet. And part, and I just, I didn't, and I remember leaving the office, going back and telling, just not doing anything because it's, I know what you're going to tell me. I'm like, okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Does this mean you're not going to write my prescriptions for my psychotropic drugs? Cause I wasn't ready to make any sort of commitment, but it was like, this guy was saying everything I was looking for, but now I'm in a panic. How am I going to do this? He's going to tell me to give up sugar. And I didn't, I couldn't do it because I didn't realize it at the time. After years of education, I realized that I was using sugar as heroin, and it was just the only thing that was keeping me alive. But then I went home, and my husband asked me how my appointment with this doctor went. And I said, this is the only doctor really I've ever met who told me that he can help me with my depression, that, he did, that I felt really hopeful. And then so my husband said, what happened? I said, I laughed. He goes, what do you mean you laughed? Did you make a follow-up? And I said, no. He said, you've been on the search for a doctor who said, and you laughed. And then he started going into how living with me was affecting him. I have to put up with your moods, your anger outbursts, your physical beatings once a month. When you are so angry and you're getting ready to start your period, and because you're so angry and your brain isn't working, you can't communicate with me. You start beating me up. And now I have to physically defend myself. I have to protect the kids from you, your moods. So he started going down the list of all the things that he has to deal with. And my children have to witness from their mother. Of course, the things he was saying were very true. <clears throat> But I was still so afraid of giving up my sugar because that's all I had. I knew I'm like, he's going to make me change my food and I can't give these things up because I've tried. I can't do it. And he says, I just, I don't think you've tried hard enough for the family. And he was right. Yeah. I couldn't argue with it. And he was calm. It wasn't a jerk about it. He was just very mm -hmm. calm. Just how much longer do we have to? Was And that really made me realize the impact of what I was going through my own suffering mentally and physically because I was putting myself through some physical turmoil with my gut health and my digestion. And I was getting fatter and fatter because of the foods I was eating and how I was eating them. I was just binging on just sugar. Yeah. So I, so I went back to the doctor and I said, okay, so what do you have? And that was the beginning of that, that time. And I told him, I said, listen, the thought of giving up sugar frightens me. It's all I have. It is the only thing that makes me happy. And I know how to use it, but it's fleeting and it wasn't working. And I can see how it was destroying my body and how it was affecting my mood. I wasn't a doctor, still not, but I, you don't, 
have to be a doctor to see what eating a high processed food and high sugar diet does to your brain and body and how it makes you feel really. Even children can realize that within the oh, yeah. minutes of eating things that it impacts you. And that was the beginning. Uh, but I learned a lot about sugar. And what's nice about this doctor in the beginning, and then, so this was actually the beginning for me of learning the truth, in my opinion, on my chemical imbalance, my mental illness, and suicide. Um, in fact, I've been in a place a couple times in my life where I was off of my hormones and had my suicidal attempts. Where to start here? The first thing I tried to do in the beginning was change my diet, which was very helpful, but it wasn't very effective because I wasn't good at it. And I didn't really realize how much the hormones affected my cravings. And this was about the time with this particular doctor, we started to work together. So this was an unusual situation. Mm -hmm. So this really tells not just the story of my mental illness history and suicide, but really the history of me getting into this business and getting into this yeah. field of medicine because it was just so intriguing. So when I first started working with his physician, I, I was a patient and he started with me with my diet. And at the same time, I started working with him in his clinic because I was really uh, impressed with how he approached medicine and I wanted to be a part of it. And when I started to see when I first start, when I consult a physician, I spend the first about 90 days, 60 to 90 days, making an assessment of the practice, especially if the doctor doesn't know where he wants to go with the practice. What is the physician doing now? What are they saying? How do they approach medicine? What's the staff? What are the processes like? What's the end result of the product? What's the patient coming in to see the physician for? So I analyze these types of things and i interview patients, staff, the physician, which everybody want. And what was interesting in this practice, it was different than other practices I had worked in. And this is at the same time I was starting this. And let me tell you, changing the diet was not easy for me. It was a bit of a struggle. So I don't want to make it seem like, oh, I just changed my diet and everything was good. No, it wasn't like that. But I did feel better at the changes that I made. What really sold me on the whole diet thing were the patients that were coming in. Because I started to see a, a, a difference in patients in this particular practice that I had seen in any other practice. And that is the patients that came in for their follow-up visits were better than they were the last time they came in. And it wasn't like this in other offices I'd worked. Yeah. It's like patients were worse. They had to leave with more medications. They came back. Oh, that didn't work. So they either left with more medications, came back worse. So it was just different. And then I would start to ask patients, what are you doing? Why are you better? And they'd say, oh, I changed my diet. And I'd be like, well, what was it before? And it was hard because I did not want to change my diet. No. I had my heels digging in. I didn't want to do it. I wanted to do anything else. Just don't make me change my diet. Please, I don't. My sugar addiction came from a very young age when I was living in Japan. So this came, my sugar addiction was my Japanese candy addiction came from, I would say at the beginning age of maybe three. And the thought of giving up my Japanese candy was 
So I even had a hard time getting access to it when we moved to the States. So so there was just this addiction from a very young age that the thought of giving it up uh, was just like, (laughs) I, when I look back on how strong the sugar addiction was and how much sugar impacts mental illness, and these are the... And I'll get into probably get into it in another show, but my my education on sugar and how it acts as heroin in the body was really an eye opener for me, and it helped me manage my sugar. But back to talking to patients about what did you do? Why are these things different? If you wouldn't, honestly, every single one for the most part came back to the diet. Oh, the diet! <laughs> what did you do? What did you do? It wasn't so just one thing. The thing I didn't want to have is the diet. The big, diet was a really big thing. The diet and bringing on supplements. I wasn't a big supplements person. You should get your a nutrition from food. It's easier said than done. When I started listening to patient after patient talk about the different things that they were doing to make themselves better, well, of course it opened my eyes. And then I wanted to do it too. And I'm like, okay, well, then I'm going to have to just do it because clearly it's working. Yeah. It's not like people are doing it and they're failing. So then I started to make more and more dietary uh, lifestyle changes, but then things started to get really profound when we started to get more education right before, right when I realized I really wanted to make a commitment working with this physician beyond just the initial assessment on what's going on with the practice. I realized these doctor, the doctor I was working with, with was doing hormones. And a lot of the way that patient, and I hadn't started hormones yet at this point, but I saw a lot of the patient's progress had to do with hormones. It first started to do with food and then progressed into hormones, hormone therapy. And the profound effect it had, it was just like night and day. Patients were starting to come off of prescription medications. Mm-hmm. Now, when I started doing this, electronic health records weren't used. Doctors were still using hard copy charts. These hard copy, what receptionists would do when the patients would come out of the exam room with the doctor, they would stop at the front desk, hand the receptionist their prescriptions. The receptionist would take a copy of these prescriptions and put them in the hard copy chart. This is how the doctors kept track of what prescriptions were written and everybody knew what what the current uh, prescriptions were just by looking in the chart. So I noticed that when patients would come out of the exam rooms and the receptionist would ask, the patients would say, well, I don't have any more prescriptions. What do you, the receptionist would say, what do you mean? I no longer have these diseases. I no longer have high blood pressure, or I no longer have high cholesterol. I no longer have type two diabetes. I know. And I would hear, I was like sitting in my office and I could hear the conversations with the patients and the receptionist. And I would pop out my office and I'd say, what do you mean you don't? And I'd, take them to the side and say, so you no longer have type two diabetes. How did that happen? No, I had to change my diet and I got the hormones and they would tell me what they, that's just crazy. And then there, um, and then there was a time, cause I wasn't sure when would be a good time for me to start the hormones at this point. Uh, okay. I wasn't sure because I was still menstruating, but I was having horrible periods and, and I, and I wasn't, sure. This is all really new to me. And because I saw what was going on with the hormones with the doctors, I recommended that the doctor get certified. And so the doctor invited me to go through the certification, to go through the fellowship at the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine with him and the Institute for Functional Medicine. 
I went through this fellowship with him. So now, like I had mentioned before, I'm witnessing some things in the clinic. I'm experiencing some things with myself and I'm getting this education, this formal education at, with an, a couple of colleagues of mine. So we're learning these things on hormones and diet and the impact it has on mental illness. Then there was a point where I saw the consistency in the practice. And as I decided to be a part of this team more formally, I uh, was the director of operations. I was going to build this business, a wellness center, because it was so it was easy for me as a businesswoman and as somebody in marketing and building a brand, I can sell wellness. It's easy to say, if you do this and this, you're going to get this result. Gosh, that's easy. But I hadn't experienced that in any other office. And I found that I had to be really careful of saying that. How can I word this in a way that if you actually do this and this, you won't have mental illness. Nobody allows that. So that I found that pretty interesting. But also there was, I was at a point in time in my life where I couldn't eat my way out of this depression. I, I found I was really struggling with the depression and the suicidal thoughts once a month because my suicidal thoughts came just about every month. Even as a young mom, it really bothered me that I was going into this dark place. But then a couple of weeks later, I wasn't in this dark place. Not only was I not in the dark place, I was so happy. Like I couldn't imagine a happier life for myself. I loved my husband. I loved my children. I loved my happy home. I loved my life. And, but then two weeks later, not only do I want to kill myself, I want to take my children and my whole family with me because it's such a horrible place to be. And so here I'm living this double life of feeling this chaos of feeling on top of the world. And then this is my dog. This is why I, I diagnosed you with bipolar. I'm like, yes, but I don't feel like I have a mental illness. I kept telling my doctors this. Yes, but I don't feel like I have a mental illness the way it's described. Yeah. I'm not mentally ill. I'm like, so what do you say to me on day 12 in the first part of my menstrual cycle? Am I not mentally ill then? Am I mentally ill then, but it's not inflamed until it gets into my luteal phase? How does that work? That's why you're bipolar. I'm like, And then there was a time when I completely lost it. I, I remember just losing it when I, I, I find, and this is what happens to women is they lose it. They'll just snap yeah, for no reason. And I find myself doing that a lot with my children. That, and it could be anything so dumb. And and when I knew it was time, so I was working with my colleague and who we'd become friends. And he kept encouraging me to get on the hormones. I'm like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Even though I'm watching this, because I never, I think for me, what it was, I was so resistant to it because I didn't think it would work for me. And I was told that it would. And I'm seeing that it's working for people clinically. But yet... I thought, no, my depression is so severe. How my suicidal ideation is so severe. It's not going to help me. And what if it doesn't? Then I have nothing. Then now that hope is gone. At least <laughs> it's a backwards way of thinking. At least I have that bit of hope. Yeah. And if I try it and I use it and it doesn't work, I don't have that hope because in suicide, with suicide, hope is what keeps you around. Yeah. 
And so at least I'll have that. And then, but no, there was a day when I completely, completely lost it with my, with, I went into a, just a complete rage with my son. I remember very clearly, I think my son might've been eight or nine or something. We had just gotten home, pulled up into the driveway and both of my children had ran out of the car and played, were playing in the backyard. And I was just, it was a really nice day. And I remember I was just, oh, just cleaning the junk out of the back of the kids at school. There's lunch bags and papers and stuff. So I'm cleaning things out. And I opened my son's lunch bag as any mom does to see, oh, what did they eat? (laughs) What did they not? not? What's still in there? So I looked in his bag and there was just a little corner of a crust of a sandwich, apple core, empty bag. Any mother would be happy. (laughs) But there was a corner left of a sandwich. Oh. Boy, think about it right now. I still want to cry. And when I saw that, I lost it. I remember yelling, John, I remember, I don't know what happened, but I remember standing in that driveway, looking in that bag and seeing that core and just lost it. And I called my son and he ran over because he knew the way I called him. He best be coming quick. Because he knew my voice. And I just started on him about, you're so ungrateful. How could you leave this food? And as I, in this sandwich, because he was playing football, he started playing football at this time. And so his he had quite an appetite. The sandwich I made him was like, oh my God, with turkey and vegetables and cheese and sprouts. It was like this thick. He had eaten this huge sandwich, but he left that bit of a crust. And to me, that was just enough to make me flip. And I I kept going on and on and just yelling at him and, and calling him, I'm sure every name. I try not to revisit that because it's just too painful to revisit. But I just start, and I just remember the expression on his face when he was just looking at me and just this devastation of, and now I'm yelling at him and, and calculating in my head as I'm yelling at him, the expression on his face and what I'm doing to him. And then as I'm yelling, and I'm, I actually didn't realize how talented I am, but I can do all these things at the same time, yeah. yell at my son and make him feel so horrible, realize now as a mother that I'm doing this, but also thinking in my head, the damage I'm doing, how can I wrap this up nicely and not create more damage? And so that was just the beginning. And I just remember thinking, I am making a mess of my children's lives. How can I be like this? And I'm realizing I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. I can't do this anymore. And it was actually around this time of my life where I had my last suicide attempt. This was around that time. Where everything was coming, crashing down on me. I couldn't cope. I couldn't function. Anything would make me snap. I couldn't sleep through the night. I didn't like myself. I couldn't depend on myself. I never knew when I was going to do that. Everything was happy. Just that I'm like kids, right? I can hear them playing in the backyard. I'm like the dog. The kids are playing with the dog. It's like, 
beautiful day in Biddable Park. I just lived right across the street from Biddable Park. It was just like gorgeous. And then all it took, just like that. Now I've created absolute chaos. So I did, I got on the phone, I talked to my doctor. I said, I have got, okay, so what are those? I just, I can't do this anymore. And, and he was the one who actually helped me at my suicide attempt. It was just, I think, weeks prior to this event. And he was the one who pulled me out of my car. He just, he knew how bad it was for me. Yeah. Yeah. He knew how bad it was for me. And then what I was learning and he knew what I was learning. And so I, I started on the, I started on the hormones. I started on a first, second generation HRT system, a low static dose HRT system, which helped tremendously. And this is, but this is what we were learning at this time with the, right. the low static dose hormones, but it just, it, I, I, I couldn't believe it when I first started it so much so that I just thought that it was not real. I thought that I was just making yeah. it up. I thought that, oh, this is just a mental excuse. Or I thought it work. You know what they say? It's psychosomatic. You just want it to work. So it's working. Yeah. yeah. But it was consistent. And so it really surprised me. It was consistent for a while. And that was the bit, that was really the beginning of a journey for me of just this personal journey with hormones and my experiences taking them and its impact on my mind and my body, but mostly my mind, especially from just being diagnosed at such a young age and living my life, just this nightmare of mental illness and relationships and jobs that just come and go because of, because People with mental illness, they don't hold on to relationships. They don't hold on to jobs. They just don't, they can't even hold on to themselves for crying out loud. It's just too hard to cope with mental illness. But I just never knew because I was told I had this chemical imbalance. I just never knew that, that, what that chemical was. And like I mentioned it, and I mentioned it when I talk about this, it's like my, personally, my chemical imbalance, my chemical was estrogen. And the imbalance for me was the deficiency. And that's what fixed it for me. But it took me a while to really realize this and make this connection because it's not what conventional medicine says. Well, not only that, okay, consider the diagnosis you've been given, what you've been labeled with and stuck with since you were a teenager, all of these big things, okay? And here you have this one little thing, goof. And it's fixed. But see, we're not we're not conditioned to believe things that work that well. It was so difficult for me to tr- even though I was experiencing it because of all that I was told and all that was yes. put on me. Yeah. When I took and what society, what conventional medicine, everything that I bought but I didn't realize this is when I was just realizing that this is what was going on at the time and so then now I, what was happening with me I can see with other patients in, cl- in the clinic and someone women would say oh I feel this way or I feel this way I'm like okay yeah me too me too me too that's gone too that's gone you too you too and then back to the conferences so now there's just like this three-way learning experience with this with mental health. And so as I'm like 
talking about doing your blog. I'm like, I'll do or your show. I'm like, yeah, I can talk about suicide with this, but I didn't really realize this is what started this whole thing with me. Yeah. This is what really made me, because now I'm, ta- I'm talking about perimenopause and menopause and avoiding this, oh, but yeah. it's the mental illness that people get at a very young age. It's not really about perimenopause or menopause or even about PMS and PMD, which is all associated with this. So I was a young a girl with PMS and PMD, which is a severe form of PMS, just horribly debilitating. What I come to find out is PMD, perimenopause and menopause are all caused by the same things. And that's low hormones. So when you have a young woman, in fact, there's quite a few studies that talk about women with PMDD have more suicidal thoughts uh, going to perimenopause a lot sooner. And, but what they're not really making the connections on, well, that's just because estrogen is more deficient in these women and they're, they've been deficient longer. When a woman with PMD reaches the age of perimenopause in their mid thirties or something, they have have been estrogen deficient for a long time. It's not like women get to be in their mid thirties and then they get perimenopause Menopause, hap- perimenopause happens. Well, even these young women, you can say they're perimenopausal. Right. Because they don't have enough estrogen and progesterone to create a natural menstrual cycle, to create a natural period bleed without incident. When a woman says, How do I know how long I've been hormonally out of balance? I mostly talk about estrogen, probably the first out of balance hormone. It's check the quality of your menstrual cycle. What were your periods like when you were younger? What were the periods like? And that's how, if you're a young woman who had horrible periods, they were debilitating every month and they were emotionally, mentally, and physically painful. Well, that's usually brought on by low estrogen. And so if we give young women the hormones that they're no longer or are not able to produce from the get-go, then we wouldn't have the suicide rate we would because we're fixing the reason the ideation is, is there to begin with. And I know that it makes a lot of people unhappy when I say you can fix suicidal thoughts and prevent suicidal thoughts by restoring hormones, but that can be done for a lot of people. I'm not saying for everybody, right. and fix and cure are not good terms, but doctors are really willing to sh- shell out all the different psychotropic drugs. I think that doctors should be educated and looking at main sex hormones. Even if we were to educate physicians in medical school, take a look at estrogen. Look what happens when women don't have enough estrogen. On the list is suicidal ideation. Why are we continuing to ignore that? If there's enough data in the National Library of Medicine that discusses this, why isn't that first line therapy when young women go to the doctor and say, I want to slip my, I want to kill myself and everybody around me? Oh, let's check your hormone levels. Oh, you have horrible periods? That's an indicator. The fact that the doctors are in the dark about this and don't do anything about it, you have to ask, why are we in the dark about this? Because it seems like it's so barbaric. I, I'm certainly, I have a ton of questions because the first thing that comes to mind when you say that 
is it's not so much about dis-ease as it is about deficiency. And in the, I don't know, 14, 1500s, when they started sailing the seas and really finding other places and having trouble on board ships with rickets and such because yeah. of lack of vitamin C, it was a deficiency yeah. that the men on board had. And deficiency diseases such as, yeah, vitamin D deficiencies as well. Yeah. To me, it just makes so much more sense because back in those days, there wasn't really a huge pharmacological setup. It was not the industry it is today. It's not. We still have these studies that come out that say, we don't know enough about estrogen more studies are needed. So I read a study, I believe it was 1889. This I dug as far back as I can go. And there's even more studies before, but this particular study was 1889. I'll have to pull it up. But yeah, I wanted to, I did a lot of digging in the history of this, even before they came up with the name of estrogen. But even the scientists knew in the late 1800s, that the ovaries secreted a substance that affected the mental health of a woman. They didn't know what it was called. They called it a secretion. In fact, they weren't even called ovaries at that time. They didn't even have names for these things. Depression, that wasn't a name, but they knew. They already made the association that there was something about the secretion that the ovaries manufactured that impacted the hysteria of women. Um, yes, yes. And there was a lot of studies coming out around that time. And that's my favorite time of, of medicine is during that time because of all the discoveries of, right. of these types of things before they had names for it. But they knew back then. And the fact that we're still saying the same thing after hundred plus years, we need more data on estrogen. Where is it, please? Yeah. Because we shouldn't still be saying that. We should be much more advanced in this. And the fact that we're not even teaching doctors in medical school to restore hormones to prevent these types of diseases is crazy. So when I talk about how estrogen deficiency is one of the leading causes of mental illness, I know I'll hear a lot of plaque from it. I already do. But my thing is, is, if you think what I'm saying is a bunch of hogwash, prove me wrong. I want to see this data because people do ask me, where's this data? Where's the data that by maintaining estrogen in a certain range prevents these types of diseases? And I say, I, uh, I answer back, yeah, where is that data? Bring it on. Let's ask ourselves why the FDA won't allow that data. And because they won't, and they won't, the FDA gets to decide what clinical trials are done. And as long as the FDA keeps shutting down clinical trials on adequate dose hormone therapies, we'll never know the truth about what happens when we fully restore hormones. Because I'm just talking about giving women the hormones that her brain and body start produ stop producing. Our ovaries die in our mid thirties. And they produce two, three more hormones that we really need to function and thrive and have our wits about us. 
And when those hormones are taken away and they're not there, we're expected to mentally perform and physically perform and behave rationally. It's just crazy. So we spend two thirds of our lives without estrogen, testosterone, or progesterone, the very hormones that give us our brain. See, I just think this is a big joke. So if we know that these hormones, especially estrogen and progesterone, give a woman's mind back to her, pretty much depression-free and mental illness-free, and there's plenty of data to support that, why aren't we addressing this first? Why are we keeping these women hormonally deficient? And anyway, I get back to that question, who stands to benefit keeping women hormonally deficient? Who stands to benefit keeping women mentally ill? Who stands to benefit keeping women crazy? Especially when there's something, I don't want to say it's easy. It's relatively easy to restore hormones for women. You just have to teach it to a doctor. It's not easy for a doctor who has not been taught that. So I'm an advocate for teaching physicians how to fully restore hormones. And then let's see what we have on the other side. Mm -hmm. And then we see, do we have a, do we truly have a mental illness or do we have a side effect of a hormone deficiency? Right. Yeah, so the, the the history is long and the data should be there, all of it, but it's not. And I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but we have to ask ourselves if there is if there's an if there's even a lot of data on low dose hormone therapy, on estrogen itself in the National Library of Medicine. Let's see what we can do. Let's see what happens when you give woman enough. Yeah. Enough hormones. Because even research, I, I I always go through, I'm a, I'm a research junkie and I do go down a lot of rabbit holes and just Googling estrogen deficiency, suicide and PubMed, you can pull up so many studies that show even low dose hormone therapies, keep women from thinking about killing themselves. Absolutely. Very much so. So there's a long answer to your question. <laughs> yeah, no, no, and and it was a good one. I told you this was going to be a good show, didn't I? Yeah, I never really thought I would talk about any sort of my suicide attempts, but you can't really talk about hormones without really talking about that because it is a conversation that I have with my clients, our patients on a daily basis. Because it's something that happens every day, a conversation. Women feel this. Yeah. And it's how you got into this world of work as well, which I I feel very lucky. I feel very fortunate. I'm grateful for this stumbling upon and this getting into a field of medicine where it would, it too was just evolving. So it was, yes, I do. I feel I'm very grateful for my opportunity with this and I'm at a place in my life where I've, I'm going to stop being afraid to talk about these sorts of things, especially when I know there's a solution. It's almost like people are going to be more angry with me talking about the solution as I am talking about the situations. What's if estrogen really fixed mental illness or fixed depression, then why aren't we all doing it? Good question. Let's answer that. Let's get the answer to that. Let's get more data. So I guess with the next question is, why do I do this? Why, why do I care? I am, my brain is so far removed from those days 
of thinking about that, even when things are bad, Elaine, because things aren't always cherry red all the time. No. I mean, there are things that come pe- in people's lives. Hormones don't fix everything and estrogen doesn't fix everything. But I'll tell you something. It allows a woman to cope. It allows her to have her wits about her so she can make good, confident, rational decisions. Because when women don't have estrogen, they make a lot of decisions based off of fear. And when women are in a suicidal state and they have to make a major life decision, or especially they're a single mom and they're making decisions for themselves and their children, and they're in a suicidal state, it's really hard to make good decisions. And then you end up making worse decisions and creating a worse environment for yourself and your children because your brain isn't working. Yeah, it took me a little bit to get used to depending on my brain. Yeah. And depending on not being depressed. That gave me a different level of anxiety uh, that I, <laughs> because I wasn't used to feeling good more than typically what happens, especially with perimenopausal women, the amount of good days tends to dwindle. Right. It was like, okay, I have good two weeks, bad two weeks. And the older women get, it's bad three weeks, one good week. Yeah. And then it dwindles down into days, two good days, three good days in a row, two good days in a row. And then it dwindles down to, oh, I have a good day. This is my good day. And and so I was down to two good days a month when I started on the hormones. And I was, so when I start taking the hormones, the feeling that I got was, oh, this is one of my two good days. Like we're nothing, one of those good days, and I describe it as it's Christmas time. You have two weeks off paid. All the family that you really are coming over and the ones that you don't aren't. The music's playing, it smells good, you're baking everything, nothing and nothing will blow it for you. There's nothing, children are around, everybody that you love, everything, nothing's going to blow it. And you know, nothing will, I don't care. It's going to bounce right off me. It's like these days where nothing could make you not happy. It was weird to have that feeling two days in a row and then three days in a row, especially when there are things that trigger though that those times where if somebody can say something, it could be cutting me off on the freeway, saying something in a tone that triggered something in me that broke me inside. So now it's, but it can be anything, a look, I think a corner of a sandwich. Yeah. Um, could be anything. And so I was on day six of this. I was in the clinic walking down the hall. And one of the physician who wrote, who was treating my hormones, he said, Hey, how are you doing on those hormones? And I was just like, and I just look around me and I'm like, okay, <laughs> I did. I was like, okay, how long is this going to last? He said, what do you mean? I go, how long is it going to last to feel this way? He goes, are you all right? I'm like, I feel so good. I feel happy. Like nothing is going to ruin my day. Nothing is, I can't wait to go. I can't wait to pick up my kids from school. Like, I can't wait to be around them. I love the patient. I'm not mad at, I'm like the things that normally would make my mood turn a certain way aren't, is not. 
and I'm nervous because I feel good and I want to go do things I'm, and I want to make plans. And my girlfriends are asking me to go do something in a couple of weeks. And I, don't, and I, that's not been my life. Usually when I feel good now, it's not going to be that way in a couple of weeks. So I can't, so I have to actually time everything around my one or two good days. And he says, oh no, you're going to have to get used to that. And I said, what do you mean? He says, you're just going to have to get used to feeling good every day. This isn't, this is how you're supposed to feel every day, is what he said to me. <laughs> like, what? Like every day? And he said, every day. I said, this is not going to go away. He goes, no, probably not. He goes, you'll get used to it, but it's not going to go away. I said, I don't believe you. it was just, I couldn't, even though I was experiencing it and it was day six in, and believe me, people have done things and things have happened that would have triggered things. And it just wasn't. And then I started to depend more on the feeling good. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know what this does to a woman? It builds self-trust because women who have mood swings don't believe in themselves. They can't trust themselves. They, they don't feel like they have willpower. And this is one of the reasons why women don't stick to diets. This is one of the reasons they don't stick to exercise routines because they'll feel all gun ho and everything in their follicular phase or when they have estrogen, but you take that estrogen away or that estrogen tanks, all bets are off. It just, everything changes until she gets on it, has estrogen again. And that's why back in the follicular phase, when her estrogen gets higher and she feels good, she thinks that she can take on the world. But when you get enough and you're like that every day where you have enough of the right hormones and you can depend on yourself and it's consistent, I tell you, it's, there's just a lot of things that go through the mind of a woman and there's a lot of healing that takes place, a lot of healing and, and a lot of growth. Well, yeah, a lot of personal growth because women start to realize around this time that they're not messed up, broken, that they're not broken, that they're not a problem, that they are not the black sheep of the family, that they are not the ones causing all the problem for real. They may because of their moods and behavior, but there's a reason and, and it's fixable. And so it's nice to see. So I have to say the most rewarding thing in my profession is watching women go through this transitional phase Oh yeah, where they start to realize they can depend on themselves, that they really are now the person you are on the inside. And I didn't know who this person was. I did. I thought I got glimpses glimpses of them over the of her over the years but estrogen really allows a woman to live her life more authentically and not in this place of mental illness and wanting to die every day I it is such it's like night and day and that's why I say I forget how bad it was when you live your life feeling alive and you want to live every day, even when things are bad, even when death is on your doorstep for other people, for other things, there just is, you don't go into that dark place like estrogen deficiency allows a woman to go. So that's why, so I, I got more and more excited wanting to talk about this as more of a podcast of hope, really. Because like I said, hope is the only thing that keeps that trigger from being pulled. It's just that one. It's just absolutely. absolutely. And I'm not saying that estrogen is going to fix everything for every woman. 
but it's a stone for a lot of women that has been left unturned. And even women who are on hormone replacement therapy, who are still getting suicidal thoughts, you're not on the right hormone therapy because there's different types of hormone therapies. There's low dose, there's adequate dose. And I'm talking about the adequate dose. And I'm not talking about high dose, I'm talking about adequate dose. And there is a place of hormonal balance where women can get rid of the majority. I'd have to say when I was talking to another doctor about this, he says, how much, what percentage of mental illness do you think we or that this fixes this gets rid of and we can't it's, it's probably about 85 to 95 percent of mental illness diagnoses can get taken care of just by restoring main sex hormones in both men and women for women estrogen and progesterone because those two hormones need to be looked at as one main sex hormone but estrogen dictates the performance of progesterone which is why i always talk about estrogen And for men, it's testosterone. And so in this conversation, as I mentioned in a lot of when I talk about estrogen in women, especially when it comes to mental illness, everything holds true with men and testosterone. Men get suicidal thoughts and they really don't talk about it. They don't. They can go into a very dark place. And if you pay attention to a man, you can see that he is in it. He may not complain the same way women do. But you take a man's testosterone away and you're, you take away the man. And when you take away the man, you just really take away life for him and everybody around him that he's taken care of. So I, I'm a big advocate for main sex hormone restoration, for suicide prevention and mental illness. And I'm going to stop us right here okay. for a number of reasons. I would imagine. This has, thank you so much. Thank you so much for opening up about your journey because I know that it's hard. I also know that sharing your burden can also help ourselves with going forward. So there's that benefit. But the reason I want to stop us is because this is only the beginning. Mm-hmm. I believe, of a much bigger conversation mm-hmm. that we need to continue. I think it's a good foundation that it gives people an idea, a little bit about me, what I'm talking about. It gives them enough that they can go look me up without having to give my whole story yeah. and set the foundation, like you said, for further shows but you do you think it was good because sometimes i go off on tangents and i try to bring it back oh no no tangents at all that was absolutely perfect okay good what i want to say to our audience is that yes we are going to continue in this topic we're going to go farther and explore more of the research that I know for a fact Marie has done and the research she is has found available for everyone to look into. If you have questions, if you have suggestions, or if you want to know more about what Marie does and the whole concept of hormone balancing and hormone replacement, is that right? Yes, hormone replacement therapies. Yeah, then 
everything that you need to know will be on her page uh, below the transcript. We will have all the links that you need and probably a few more. And we will make sure that, Marie, I would love you to come back in a few weeks and let's get into part two because I think this is going to be an ongoing saga so that perhaps we can reach out to more of the medical community so that we can get more answers and get this to more and more people out there. I'm all about stopping suicide. I'm all about the prevention, the awareness, and as many of my male guests have talked about, stopping the problem for the men in our communities as well. Yep. Marie Hogue has been my guest today. Thank you so very much. This is just our foot in the door. Do come back and follow up with us as we dive really deep into what's really going to be, I think, an incredibly important discussion for many people. On that note, I'm Elaine Lindsay. This is Suicide Zen Forgiveness. And as I always ask, please make the most of your today every day. And we'll see you next time. Bye, Marie, and thanks again. Thank you, Elaine. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on your favorite service. Suicide Zen Forgiveness was brought to you by Truel Social Media, the digital integration specialists. Let them get you on page one in the search results. And also by Canada's keynote humorist, Judy Kroon, the motivational speaker, comedian, author, and stand-up coach at Second City.